Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is August 30th, 2013. This is episode 1198 of the Survival Podcast, and it's Friday, 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 which means it's time for your calls to the Think Line. That's 866-65-THINK, 866-65-THINK. For those without letters on your buttons or your touch pads or whatever you're using to make a phone call, the actual digits are 866-658-4465. 866-658-4465. As always, if you pick up that phone right now and call in and go, I want to talk to Jack, you're going to hear a voice message and you're going to have to leave one and maybe you'll be on the show next week or two. Because it's not a live show, it's a podcast. Some people do get confused about that. Anyway, uh, maybe one year we'll uh, do... Uh, do something like that, but uh, for right now, we're sticking with this. This has worked for uh, about five years now, and it seems to work really well. I go through the calls. I have to tell you that it used to be that about, I would say, a good 30 to 40, almost 50% of calls got online with the call volumes of late. Uh, I'd say more it's like 20% of calls are getting on air, and just due to volume, that's just the way it's going to be unless we decide to start doing more of these, and these shows usually go... An hour and a half to two hours anyway, so we probably won't. Anyway, before I get to your calls, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsor. Sponsor of the day number one today, JM Bullion. <coughs> Excuse me. You know, even though I sell silver from uh, Mulligan Mint, TSP Design Silver, Paradigms, and things like that, um, they're custom minted medallions, and that's what they are. And they're, you know, to fill that niche. Some of you guys want to buy pre-65 coin. Uh, U.S. silver, you know, 90%. Some of you want to buy generic rounds. Some of you want to buy silver eagles. Some of you want to buy gold. Well, for all of that, get over to JM Bullion. They are a great sponsor with a great reputation, a great selection, and great pricing. I selected them as a sponsor out of the silver industry because they were big enough to do a good job and small enough that I could get the owner on the phone or by email if I ever needed to sort out a problem. Uh, when I approached people like Atmex and Monex for that, they really kind of laughed at me that I would think that I could get that level of customer service out of them. And uh, so I laughed at them and told them I didn't need them and found JM Bullion. That's where I would buy. If I was going to buy a bunch of Silver Eagles tomorrow morning, that's where I'd buy them from, and I own my own silver shop. That tells you how impressed I am with their operation. Check them out today, jmbullion.com. Next up today, Fortress Defense Consultants, the awesome Frank Sharp, Jr., who we'll actually be hearing from on the expert council, by the way, today. Uh, if you want to get good quality firearms training, I can't think of a better place for you to go than Fortress Defense. And if you can't get up to his place in Indiana, know this. You put together a group, he'll come run training at your facility. They'll even do customized training if you have something specific you want to do, uh, including things like setting up uh, retreat defense positions and things like that. They will do all the training you would want both with firearms and medical training, first responder training. If you're going to ever carry a, if you're going to carry a gun, there's potential at some point you could be somewhere and right in the thick of it when someone else is hurt, life-threatening injuries or yourself for that matter. So uh make sure you have the medical training to go along with it. 
Next up, I want to remind you guys about the Walking to Freedom Forum. Please get on over to Walking to Freedom. If you're walking, put your goodbye letter. If you're not walking but you're willing to help people evaluate your state, make sure you're posting in your state boards. Again, I'm looking for an admin. I'm looking for an administrator of the Walking to Freedom Forum to be the captain of that ship, to work with me in a partnership agreement. If you have experience with Simple Machine Forums, And if you are, uh, uh, you know, if you are a believer in the cause that Walking to Freedom represents, I need those two things. Get in touch with me, and uh, we'll put together a partnership agreement. And you'll run the Walking to Freedom forum. And I think in a few more, you know, maybe six months' time, we could probably monetize that forum significantly. But we'll need a captain of that ship. And with all the things I have going on, I just don't have time to do that. Uh, last but not least, do consider joining the member support brigade. That would be how you'd help support this show. At a whopping 18.3 cents an episode. And in addition to uh, supporting us, we'll support you back if you join that uh, member support brigade. Because we'll get you discounts to over 40 different vendors for the stuff you're probably buying anyway in this preparedness world. From guns to garden and everything in between, I've got discounts lined up for you. I've got a program that pays for itself many times over. I've got $200 worth of free ebooks the day that you sign up. Uh, and that's just to get you started. So do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members or click on our Member Support Brigade banner. If you uh, are military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, or a first responder like a paramedic or EMT or firefighter and you email me before, not after you join, but before you join, at jack at the survivalpodcast.com and uh, put service discount in the subject line. Tell me who you are and what you're doing or what you did if you're prior service. Do that in one or two sentences. That's all I need. I'll email you back a discount code that will save you even more money and an already great product. Um, and now we're going to go into our uh, our new segment, What Happened in the uh, Year of the Episode. So this is episode 1198, What Happened in 1198. This is where we see the more things uh, change, the more they stay the same. Emperor Tokushimoto, I can't read his name right, uh, succeeded Emperor Gotaba for the throne of Japan. And uh, let's see, some stuff happened here in Europe. Philip of Swabia was elected king of Germany by his supporters. But then uh, in July of the same year, Otto of Brunswick is crowned king of Germany by the House of Wealth. Uh, so that seems like a very short-lived monarchy. Uh, Frederick II, infant son of King uh, German King Henry VI, uh, is crowned as the king of Sicily. John of England captures a party of 18 French knights and many men-at-arms in an ongoing conflict against France. King Richard of England introduces a new great seal in an attempt to keep the war against France funded. The government proclaims the charters previously struck with the old seal are no longer valid and must be renewed with a fresh payment. The office of Lord Warden of the Stanaries is also, is also introduced to tax the produce of tin mines in Cornwall and Devon. So, the government wanted to fund a war, so it broke its existing agreements with its people, created a new seal, and said, you got to pay us again for our agreements to be binding. And then they created another, an entire institution, the Office of Lord Warden of the Stanaries, just to tax tin mines. Gee, that was in the year 1198. Do you really think these are new ideas? In religious uh, history... Pope Innocent III succeeds Pope Celestine III is the 176th Pope. He immediately lays an interdict on Leon in an attempt to stamp out independent beliefs there. This will be followed by interdicts against France in 1199 and Normandy in 1203. 
What is an interdict? That's a, a Catholic canon law issue where basically you say to certain people, there's certain rights within the church that you no longer can participate in, but you are not uh, excommunicated. You're not thrown out of the church. You're still in the church. Still tell you what to do. Still expecting to see you show up for Mass. But perhaps an interdict might be something like, you no longer can receive communion. That would be one type of an interdict that could be done by a pope. So uh, the pope takes over, gets angry that people have uh, independent beliefs in a city, and tries to punish them in the easiest way and quickest way that he can. Um, there's not a lot of the, the births and deaths in this year are people that most people wouldn't know. But if you uh, want to know more about the year 1198, I'll have a link to the Wikipedia page on it in today's show notes. Right, one quick announcement before we go ahead and take your first call today. Um, many of you guys paid attention uh, with great interest to uh, Patrick at MT Knives as he launched the stakeholder program with 100 limited edition knives uh, and saw that he sold out all of the limited edition knives in six minutes um, and is on a path now to financial independence. His last day of work is, I think, the 5th of September or something. Like that. Some Sometime in the first week of September, and uh, he'll be busy making knives <laughs> like crazy for a while. And uh, his hope is to actually get out a second limited edition knife um, before year's end, something that would come out and be around in time to, as Christmas presents. Stakeholders, of course, will get first crack at those, and um, the stakeholders that don't want that knife will have opportunity to sell it. Uh, to uh, anybody that's not a stakeholder and, and make a little bit of money when they do that. So that'll happen pretty quick because he's pretty motivated right now to get out a second set of knives. And I believe he already has the frames for that second set. They were already cut. Uh, so, so I think it'll be it'll be possible for him to do that. And pretty soon he's going to have nothing to do but make knives. Anyway, um, you can't get a stakeholder's knife now unless you were after, you know, this could happen after the stakeholder receives their knife. When they're all delivered, you could talk to somebody that has one about buying their position from them directly. Um, or they can put it up for bid on empty knives. I don't think a lot of people are going to want to do that right away. But you do have an opportunity between now and tomorrow to get a pretty awesome knife. Patrick has a knife he's carried for quite a while. His personal neck knife. It's a beautiful knife. Uh, he made it for himself, so you know he did a good job on it. And he's auctioning off his personal knife at his website. I'll have a link in today's show notes. I think the bid right now is up to 510 bucks, And you have until, I think, close business tomorrow, Saturday, the 31st of August, to, uh, to bid on it. So if you would like Patrick's personal neck knife, get on over to mtknives.net and uh, give it a bid. And I'll have a direct link to the uh, page for you so that you can, uh, you can bid on it if that's what you want to do. With that... I've got the announcements, housekeeping, all that good stuff wrapped up. Let's go ahead and uh, take our first call today. Hello, Jack. It's uh, RV in Key West. Um, I heard you mention uh, AgriTrue again. You brought it up at your last show. And uh, my question is, can you label AgriTrue on a organic fertilizer? Um, I make my own organic fertilizer, and I'm marketing it on uh, Amazon.com right now. It's called Rubenitos. And uh, it's got all, all, all the um, army, O-R-I-A, uh, ingredients in it. And I harvest my own fish and seaweed here on the island. And um, I'm marketing that now. And uh, I, I don't know the process to get it certified organic to the, you know, to the government or whatever. But I was wondering if uh, can a product like uh, an organic fertilizer 
have the AgriTrue uh, label on it. Appreciate your comments and everything you do. Bye. Well, first, the AgriTrue product and network has to exist before that can happen, and it's been a long road, so I'm not going to commit to anything. I feel like we're on the right track with AgriTrue. Um, which, for those who have never heard it before, is going to be a private, free market, libertarian alternative to organic um, and may not be run exactly the same way organic is. That's the entire point, or even have the exact same restrictions. And it may have some restrictions organic doesn't have. It will be primarily designed so that producer and consumer can talk to each other so that if you pick up a bucket of blueberries, even at a farmer's market or a co-op or something like that, and the guy that sell it, that made it or you know grew it and packaged it isn't there, there'll be a little uh, little uh, QR code on there. You can scan with a smartphone, pull up his page, and see exactly how he runs his operation uh, and decide whether or not that's somebody you want to buy from. And that, that's what AgriTrue is really about with some restrictions to protect the environment and the consumer. Will it be usable on packaged amendments and natural fertilizers and products and things like this? In other words, can you, if you're producing an organic fertilizer, put the AgriTrue logo on there and put AgriTrue approved? You will be able to. It will not be free. Um, we will probably have a very low price point entry for small producers like this gentleman sounds like he is. It'll probably be based on your volume. Um, it's actually probably going to be a long term if we can build AgriTrue and what I believe it can be the biggest revenue stream for the owners of AgriTrue. And I mean, make no mistake about it. I want to change the world for the better. I want to put consumers and producers back together again. But when I build a business, I do build it to make a profit. Uh, profit is not evil. Profit is the way by which a business sustains itself. So there would be a cost associated with that, you know, and we'd probably have, you know, a, a very, again, soft entry for small producers to be able to use the logo. AgriTrue will publish a list of approved amendments and products and things like that, not by brand name. If you want brand association, there's going to be a license fee for that. That's just that that is just protecting the value of the brand of AgriTrue for the people that are behind AgriTrue, including myself. Um, but we, you know, we'll say you know, fish meal, blood meal, like you know, we'll basically have a whole list of things uh, that that we consider you know safe for use. Uh, that AgriTrue producers, so an AgriTrue producer that would be buying from this guy that just called in. Thanks for your call. It's an interesting call, by the way. Even if you decided I don't, I don't want to pay labeling fee or whatever, but he wanted to buy and he wanted to still certify as AgriTrue. As long as everything in your product is on our list, there's no problem with that. So would you be able to put something on on your bag like complies with AgriTrue standards and, and not pay a fee? No, using our name. I mean, again, there's, there's a certain value. And the reason that anybody would want to put that on their product is because AgriTrue has a value. Now, what we'll probably do um, initially for small producers when we're just getting started Because you would actually be helping us as much as we would be helping you early on is come up with a uh, a free program for producers under a certain size uh, to use the logo and the AgriTrue uh, trademark 
for free for maybe a year or two. We'll, I mean, we'll figure this out when we get there. I have to confer with Tim, our legal counsel, on that, on how that affects things. Like, you know, if somebody, a big company comes in and says, hey, we want to put this on, you know, our, our product and, and we do a million units a year in Texas alone. Uh, clearly they're going to have to pay more than, than a guy in Key West making it from seaweed he harvests himself out of the ocean. Um, And, you know, does, is there a problem there? And it probably isn't, but before I'll commit to anything, that has to go to our legal counsel, uh, on that, who's also a partner in the company. So, uh, yes, that'll happen. And yes, that's a big part of our vision. And that's how we want to keep the cost for producers and for supporting members very, very low. So they can get all the traction of the marketing and, and things like that without actually charging them a huge amount. And build that brand to where people want the AgriTrue logo on everything. Uh, or at least on the people that care want the AgriTrue lo logo on just about anything that they would buy, either to consume or to feed their animals or what have you. And, uh, again, AgriTrue got set back a lot of times by developers that developed a little and talked a lot and then went away. Um, I believe three times. This fourth guy we found, I think it's why everything went wrong. Sometimes life seems to be kicking you in the teeth. And really, it's just the universe saying, wait a minute, dude, there's better down the road. And I think we found that this time. And uh, the wireframes look really good. Uh, maybe it's about time we started communicating more from the agri side. I'll talk to John today uh, by email and suggest that maybe we start pu pu publishing the wireframes as things are going and progressing on the AgriTree blog uh, and, uh, and go from there. Uh, with that, let's take another call. Hey, Jack. My name's Rob. I'm calling from Simi Valley, California. I have a question for Frank Sharp, Jr. What are some ways I can increase my child's level of situational awareness? I have two boys, age five and seven, and I'm trying to teach them to be very aware of their surroundings and the people they come into contact with and to be able to recall useful details and recognize and articulate why something or someone is out of the ordinary. What are some effective and hopefully fun ways I can improve their skills? Thanks, Jack. That's a really awesome question. I kicked it over to Frank, and he was good enough this week to get an answer back to us. Mr. Sharp, what say you? How do we increase the situational awareness of our kiddos? Hi, Jack. This is Frank from Fortress Defense. I'm responding to Rob from California's question about situational awareness for his five- and seven-year-old boys. Uh, when I first listened to this question, it kind of struck me that this is much like asking a, a tone-deaf person their opinion on music, since I have no children. So I forwarded his question to a number of my instructors, and we have some, I think, good answers that came back. Uh, a lot of them were rather long, and I have a pretty large instructor course, so we uh, cut this down quite a bit. And just in case I forget, if Rob would like to email me directly, I will forward him all of the answers I got from everyone. But for the sake of keeping things short here, uh, one of my instructors, uh, her nickname is V. She has a, a nine-year-old boy, and she does a lot of scenario training with him, where when they're riding around in the car or out in public, she'll just run scenarios past him to see what his answers on are of what he would do. Uh, and then they kind of critique them and, and tweak them a little bit and figure out, you know, if there's a better way of, of doing something. Um, and she also says that it's really important not to, to scare them or make them paranoid with that sort of stuff. Uh, I have another instructor, Fred, 
his children are much younger than Rob's. Uh, so, you know, he starts with the basic, you know, don't talk to strangers and no unauthorized people are uh, allowed to pick them up, that sort of thing. But he also said that Pictionary is probably the best memory game that he's found for his kids. He says it's really hard to beat. Um, he also makes games up when they're out, uh, like uh, when they're walking through the mall or, or out in public, he'll start asking his kids to point out who's taller or shorter than dad. Uh, they also do things, uh, you know, he pretends he's teaching them how to how to uh, tell difference in colors and that sort of thing by like, you know, what color is that person wearing and that. And that starts, you know, opening that up in their, in their eyes a little bit there. Uh, my instructor, Tommy, uh, points out that, you know, all of us have uh, have it in our DNA to protect our own, and we'll we'll probably resort to that just at a base level, no matter what. But we do have to teach our kids something in, in the interim, and, and every child is different, obviously. Uh, and he says the th- same thing that my instructor Tony said, and and Tony has two children that he started very early in martial arts, and. Martial arts are probably one of the best ways to work on situational awareness and just all around character building in a child. And I would agree with that. I think, I think starting them young in that is probably a good idea. Um, all of my instructors pointed out that at some point it is probably a good idea to take your kids to a firing range and stand off at a distance to the point where you wouldn't need hearing protection to hear what gunshots sound like and then apply that as, as nicely as you can to their lives and, and start forming a plan that should they hear that they need to get on the move or whatever. Uh, again, if Rob would like to email me, I will send him all the complete answers of this. Uh, and for the listeners out there, we will be in Highview, West Virginia, and that will be on September 14th and 15th, and we'll be there for a level one handgun course. I've gotten a few emails about this requesting the price. It's actually 475 per student. Uh, you can sign up by emailing us at frank at fortressdefense.com or calling at 708-522-8060. And this is Frank from Fortress Defense, and may you all have victory. I think that's really awesome, and I may um, email Frank myself and ask him to send that to me, spin that into a PDF for you guys and make it available to you guys next week. I didn't actually screen his answer till this morning, so I didn't have time to do that for the show for you, but... Yeah, that also shows the power of a team, doesn't it? It's like you don't always have to know everything; you just have to know where to find the information. Um, that's how we uh, that's how we try to increase everybody's education here. And that's why we added the expert counsel. Remember, if you have a question for a council member, call it in. Don't write it in. Call it in to the think line. Send me an email immediately, letting me know what number you called from and who you called the call in for. That'll help me dig it out and make it more likely that I can get it on the air for you. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and take another one of your calls. Hi, Jack. This is Josh calling. Um, I have a question in regards to using a wasp or a hornet spray as a replacement or as uh, something similar to pepper spray. Um, I've heard people using it in the past. Um, it tends to have the advantage that it uh, has about a 20-foot direct stream. Um, it's pretty economical. Uh, hardware store actually sold a bunch of it for 97 cents for a large can uh, just a few weeks ago. Um, From what I've heard, when someone is sprayed in the face with it, they need to immediately get to the emergency room or risk blindness. Now, obviously, there could be some legal implications involved in that. Um, However, you know, if somebody 
was actually threatening my life and it's all I had on hand, I'd certainly use it. Um, I just wanted to know your thoughts on using that as an alternative to pepper spray, maybe having a few around the home, um, whether it's not, it's something that we really should even consider doing. All right. Thanks a lot, Jack. Bye. Um, it is absolutely not something you should consider doing in, on purpose. There's a one of the many Internet myths slash urban legends that police officers recommend that you do this. If a police officer is recommending you do this, police officer is recommending that you violate federal law. Now, I don't know of any police officers that at least intentionally do that. If you turn around the can of something like wasp spray, you will see a warning label on there that says it is a violation of federal law to use this product in a manner inconsistent with its labeling. Uh, the liability that you would be subject to as well, uh, when this blinded criminal who probably deserves to be blinded is, uh, it, it hooks up with a good lawyer and sues you, uh, is a big problem as well. I would never recommend that this be the plan. That's it. It is cheap. It stores a long, long time, like almost forever. I've never had a can of wasp spray not work because it was laying around too long. And it might be something that you would consider having as a means of defense in a complete breakdown. Because at that point, I'm not worried about lawyers and prosecutors. Though I think the total complete breakdown scenario like that, you know, the apocalypse movie version is very unlikely. Well, it's a few cans of wasp spray. It doesn't hurt anything. Um, if it was all you had and somebody attacked you, that would be then tough. You're going to get sprayed in the face with it. It will hurt like hell. It will shut you down. Um, it is a very dangerous thing. It is not um, usable the same way it's something like pepper spray is. Uh, in other words, if, if I spray someone I really shouldn't have sprayed with pepper spray, I kind of feel bad about it, but you know, you shouldn't have made me feel like I had to. Uh, where it very, very well possibly could have lingering long-term damage to someone from being hit with wasp spray. Uh, it would be a last-ditch effort only, and it is not. I repeat, no, the reason I cover this is because I've seen so many times people saying online, "Police officers recommend." No, they don't. No, they don't. No, they don't. And when people, you got to be careful. If you hear anything that sounds just like it ain't quite right. Um, there's this website, it's called Google, and uh, you know, a little bit of research will help you find out real quick if it's like complete bullshit. Um, and if you, you know, research it with you know, not the intent of proving yourself right, but the intent of finding out the truth, uh, it doesn't take a lot of work, it doesn't take any Google foo at all, just basically searching the way anybody would, you'll find out real quick that that's a myth and it's not a good idea. And that, again, you would be in violation of federal law because you specifically used it for that. So the important takeaway would be if you ever found yourself in a situation, say you're out in your barn and somebody attacks you and there's a can of wasp spray right there, by no means would I tell you not to grab it and spray him in the face with it. Fine. I mean, he shouldn't have done it. But when you're asked what you did, you say, well, it was the only thing I had, so I grabbed it and I sprayed it at him. Do not say I keep it for defense. Okay, I mean, that's just some legal advice there. I don't really give legal advice, but I'm comfortable with that little piece. Uh, that would be a bad idea to tell any first responder, I have this stuff for defense, so I used it when he got here. 
Uh, that even if the even if the district attorney and the police officers responding and all said we're not going to prosecute this, I don't give a damn. This is this is bullshit. The guy broke into his house or you know tried to attack this lady in her your laundry room or barn or whatever. Uh, it would still be very much so that you would be at extreme liability from a parasitic attorney representing the individual who you sprayed and probably his mother and his brother and his cousin who all have PTSD because you hurt them and some other crap like that. So don't give lawyers, you know, a free ramp into uh, into your house to unload your stuff. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. My name is Dean, and I have a question concerning cover crops and improving the soil for the expert council member Darby Simpson. Can you cut off the leaves and then leave root vegetables in the ground and then uh, plant a conventional cover crop such as legumes or buckwheat over it? I had planted some beets, rutabaga, and parsnips to try them out this year. They all turned out kind of bitter and, to my taste, really unedible. Before I go to the effort of pulling them up, I was wondering if the roots simply left in the dirt will decompose well and be a good carbon pathway for next year's garden. I did a Google search and didn't find really anything about root vegetables being used in this fashion. So is there any reason not to leave them in the soil? And would there be like a better or best combination of a root or cover crop? Um, I'm in eastern Kansas, about a zone 6B that makes any difference. I'm just uh, doing regular um, household garden, nothing fancy. Thank you for your time, and I look forward to your answer. All right, Mr. Simpson, what say you to uh, to this question? Hey, Jack, this is Darby Simpson from the Expert Council calling in to answer Dean's question about improving garden soil. His main questions were, can you cut off the leaves from a root vegetable and then leave the root in the ground, and can we then plant a conventional cover crop over this? To my knowledge, there is absolutely no reason to pull up the root vegetables. While things like beets, rutabaga, and parsnip are not normally used, to work with compacted soils, this is going to have the same net effect as root crops that are used, which will help to uh, create pathways for water to work into the soil next season, as well as leave lots of food for microorganisms to eat and then decompose, leaving behind a rich organic matter. Over the winter in your zone, the roots should decompose well and not give you any issues next year's garden. Given your current situation, and depending what you want to obtain and improve in your garden, there are several directions we can go for cover crops. If the goal is to simply get a thick layer of biomass down for the purposes of protecting the soil over the winter and providing mulch to plant into next spring, you would be hard-pressed to do better than buckwheat. You can also use a member from the grass family, like spring oats, which will winter kill, or cereal rye, which will overwinter and probably be uh, probably begin growing again next spring. In either case, we can chop and drop these cover crops to get the thick layer of mulch we desire and suppress weeds prior to planting without tilling the soil. If you're wanting to fix nitrogen in your garden and add a little mulch at the same time, then we can look at using something like hairy vetch or field peas. The hairy vetch will probably do better at growing longer in a colder climate like Kansas as we enter into late fall and early winter. You can also sow some oats with your legume crop as well. The oats will actually take off faster, and the legume crop will kind of lag behind growing slower. The first frost will kill the oats, but allow the legumes to keep on growing well past the first frost until the winter kill gets it. In some ways, this gives us the best of both worlds in that we get biomass and nitrogen at the same time. Just be certain not to forget and uh, inoculate your legumes so that you get the greatest benefit and fix as much nitrogen as possible. Dean's other question was, is there a better root crop to use 
or in combination with another cover crop. While I'm not the greatest gardener in the world, one product that grazers and gardeners alike can agree on to use as a root crop for improving soil health is the daikon radish. Daikon radishes will recycle and bioaccumulate many nutrients and help retain any applied nutrients such as manure for the following crop. They also tend to winter kill easily and leave the soil very nice and weed free for early spring garden work. This summer I've been using a rather new and innovative form of the daikon radish called the graza radish. The graza radish is, I'm told, about 80% daikon in that it is still used as a tillage radish. The other 20%, however, is different in that it was selectively bred to greatly increase the leafy growth above ground. Like many innovative things in the world of grazing, this product has been brought to us by the New Zealanders and was developed specifically for grazing animals in a production model while still providing tillage to improve soils and reduce compaction. I'm not really far enough along with this new product yet to comment on it, but if it produces as build, it should leave a good amount of carbon material on top of the ground if not grazed. Since it is a long tapping radish, it will drop lots of accumulated nutrients right on top of the soil for us to harness and use in the garden. The daikon radish is a winter kill species, so I don't know about using it in conjunction with another thick cover crop. But that being said, I sowed these gras radish at the same time as some buckwheat and German millet, both quick growing annuals in front of my cattle. The cattle then walk on the seeds, providing the uh, soil contact required for good germination. And while my goal is to graze all of this new growth, I don't see any reason that you couldn't do the same thing in the garden and then perform a chop and drop on the buckwheat and millet and allow the winter to take care of the radish for you. You just want to make certain to sow these in the right proportion to one another. In either case, it is always important to make certain that you get good soil contact with any of these annuals in order for them to take off. Also, with fall fast approaching, I would try and sow anything you might want to get established pretty soon. I suggest working with a good seed company and letting them help you come up with a mix that works for you and will help you obtain your goals. The TSP Member Support Brigade has some great seed companies to choose from, so I would suggest starting there for a purchase. If you specifically want to use the Graza Radish now or in the future, I would suggest contacting American Organics out of Warren, Illinois. They will sell you as few or as many pounds uh, of these Graza Radish seeds as you might need for your garden. And if you would like, they can even mix it with any other annuals or legumes uh, before shipping it to you. Then you can just broadcast the mix out into your garden and let it do its thing. I have found this company to be very helpful, and they really give a lot of personal attention to your specific needs and have excellent customer service. It's also a small family-owned business that I just really enjoy working with. But any good seed company like like American Organics or one of the companies listed in the MSB should be able to help you formulate a plan of attack to improve your garden soil. Thanks for calling in your question about improving soil. To learn more about me, please visit my website at darbysimpson.com where you can sign up to receive free updates about all things related to farming and homesteading with livestock, grazing, and improving soils. Thanks so much. So that's why I have Darby Simpson on the on the panel because I already just said, yeah, do it. It works great. I probably would have gave you a little more than that, honestly, but uh, but that was just an awesome answer and a great seed source, by the way. I checked those guys out after he sent me a link for it, and uh, I've got that link for you in today's show notes. Uh, so if you want to uh, to get to them, it's AmericanOrganics.com with a hyphen in it. So it's American-Organics.com. But if you go to today's show notes, you'll find that uh, – actually, I, I just said it wrong for you. That's why I put it in the show notes so I can't mess it up. It's AmericanOrganic.com. Com with a hyphen, so American-organic.com, no S, 
and uh, they seem like a great seed source. So you might want to check those guys out. Link in the show notes. Well, I've got Darby queued up. Let's go ahead. I got another call for him. And uh, well, after I'll, I'll I'll just go ahead right after the call and, and drop in Darby's answer, and then we'll be back to uh, keep keep trucking on. Hey Jack, it's John from Northeastern Ohio. I have a question for Darby Simpson. What do you do with a brooding hen? We have a bunch of egg layers, uh, egg layer chickens, and one of them took to sitting on the eggs, and I. I'm 95% sure she stopped laying. Uh, easy thing to do, um, eat her. I just didn't know if this was a habit or something that you could break her of. Um, if you have any experience with this, if not, uh, I don't know, could use some help. Thanks, bye. Hey, Jack, this is Darby Simpson from the Expert Council calling in to answer John's question about what to do with a brooding hen. One of John's hens is sitting on the eggs, and he is pretty certain she is probably no longer laying any eggs. Can you break her of this habit? You can certainly give it a shot, and this is what you want to do. Simply take this hen and segregate her from the rest of the flock so there are no eggs being produced for her to lay on. You will want to house her in an area that is actually not very conducive to laying eggs at all. If an area isn't great for laying eggs, then she may decide it's not a good place to want to root eggs either. Make certain there is no nest box available for her to use, and if and when she does lay an egg, you want to remove it immediately. Certainly don't leave one out there overnight. This may require checking on her several times a day to remove any eggs she does lay. If you see that she has taken to one specific area in this uh, new living arrangement and is sitting there all day with or without producing any eggs, try putting something in that spot to disrupt her pattern like a brick or a jagged rock. That should do the trick to make her not want to sit there. Aside from making it an environment where she doesn't want to lay an egg, be sure and give her all the amenities you normally would, including fresh water and plenty of food. The brooding cycle is normally about three weeks long, so this could take up to a month to work, but if she is a younger hen, then it is well worth the effort because she still has lots of eggs left to produce for you. If after a month she still isn't laying any eggs and her attitude has not changed, then I would suggest that you do the following. Watch a clip with the Swedish chef from the Muppets to get inspired. Then I would suggest ordering some seasonings from Chef Keith Snow and enjoying a nice hot batch of chicken stew. To learn more about me, please visit my website at darbysimpson.com where you can sign up to receive free updates about all things related to farming and homesteading with livestock. You can also contact me directly through the website to get a specific question answered. Thanks for calling in your question, and I hope that this helps with your hen. Jack, for people who want to keep a rifle in their bedroom for security purposes, can you give some uh, best practices for how to do so? Uh, safely without using, losing effectiveness. For example, I own one firearm now, just a 22 uh, rifle. Keep it in the bedroom because that seems to be where it makes most sense, but I also keep a trigger lock on it because that seems to make sense too. As you can probably tell, I'm somewhat of a novice uh, here, but I was wondering if you could uh, share with me and the audience how you uh, keep, how you balance safety and, as I said, uh, availability and effectiveness on a firearm in the bedroom, particularly a rifle. Thanks, Jeff. Bye. This is actually a fairly complex question, and it might be one that I should kick to Frank, and I may actually send this to Frank and have him do a follow-up on it for next week's show. 
but I want to kind of address a few different things here. First of all, this answer to me has an awful lot to do with do you have children or are there children that come into your home? If children come into your home, when they do so, do you have a locked bedroom that they're not allowed to go into because it's just like your sister's kids or something like that? If the case is you do not have children and either children do not enter your home or when they do, you can lock your bedroom door and they can't get in there, uh, then I have no problem with that weapon being kept uh, up under the bed. I don't like to leave a gun laying on a floor under a bed, even if it's got a bed skirt that comes down, but you can put some hooks or some sort of holding device so that it's held up like underneath the bed frame where it can be reached and accessed very quickly. And I have no problem with that weapon being there like that. Is it likely to be stolen? Will, will thieves you know, check there if they come into your home? Yeah, but they're probably going to find it in your closet or, you know, if you have it in a, unless you have it in a really secure gun safe, um, you, you, you know, you're not going to, you're going to end up probably having it found anyway. Um, this is something you have to, this at least goes into all kinds of things. So I talked to somebody one time that said that their house was broken into. They had a lot of guns. They had a gun safe. So they took a sledgehammer and they busted the gun safe open. It wasn't a real good gun safe. Um, they took some of the guns, but not all the guns. And sitting on the bed was a shotgun. It was like a cheap shotgun that apparently they took as much as they could carry, and they didn't want that shotgun. The shotgun was loaded. And they said, well, what do you think that shotgun was there for? I said, that was for you in case you came home while they were there. So they loaded this guy's own gun. They loaded one that they knew they wouldn't take, and they left it on the bed. But while they were figuring out what they were going to take, they had that gun in case he had come home and caught him in the act. So you got to be you got to be aware of things um, when you keep guns in your home that you sometimes would never think of. Like if somebody breaks in, not only will they steal your guns, but might they use them against you if you come home and catch them in the act. The next part of this I have to tell you is that keeping a rifle like that for self-defense is probably not the best uh, gun for the job, uh, but it's what you have. So you can do a couple things. You could get a small, long-gun lockbox that can be opened with a combination and maybe have it set so you only have to hit the last number. Some of them work with biometrics where you just put your finger on it and it opens, and that way if you have kids you could keep it underneath your bed. Uh, a trigger lock is going to render a weapon, if ever necessary, useless. You do not have time to remove a trigger lock. It is much easier to remove a gun from a locked box, especially if you practice it, have it loaded and ready to go in there, than it is to try to get a trigger lock off. And that, that's just the facts, and there's no way around that. Um, I would personally, if I'm going to keep a long gun for defense in the home, I'm going to probably keep a shotgun. Um, that's actually my preference for home defense is a shotgun. I think it's one the most effective, quickest fight stopper you can have, and uh, and I think it's a better weapon for the uh, for the the need. But um, I don't have any children in my home either, and if I do, they're, you know, we can lock the bedroom door, and they're not allowed where those guns are, and that's uh, that's critical. We have some guns stored in other places that are also locked up. The best method. To keep a loaded weapon safe in your home for self-defense is to carry a handgun on your person. Um, people will say, well, I live in a state where I can't carry. Very few states uh, will they tell you you can't carry inside your house. So you can have a gun that you keep in your home. You keep in a locked safe when you're not there so it's hard to steal. And you come home, put it on your hip. 
your kid's not going to, and your sister's kid is not going to find your gun if you're wearing it. You can carry concealed in your home. Um, it's one of the real advantages to a handgun that you can carry it like that. Handguns are for when rifles or shotguns are impractical for whatever reason, whether it's legality or logistics, doesn't matter. And that's, that's a great use of a handgun. My, my, you know, when my son was younger, if I have a handgun on my person, In my house, whether I live in a state where it's okay to carry legally outside the home or not, one thing I know, somebody breaks in that house, the gun's at the ready. And number two, he's not going to find it and play with it. The next thing is if kids are involved, I don't care if you have every gun under a, in a floor safe that has a safe over top of it. Children need to be educated about firearms and firearm safety. You know not to touch any gun without supervision. And, uh, you know, There's a lot of people that think kids shouldn't have toy guns or BB guns or airsoft guns, and I think that's actually a great way to keep kids from messing with other guns because they can satisfy their curiosity and they can kind of work their way up and learn certain safety protocols and things like that. So regardless of whether you have, you know, whether or not you uh, you, you keep a gun, you know keep your guns locked up, I think your children need to be educated. Personally. I think that the the best way to store a rifle or a shotgun in the home is probably in the bedroom. It's most likely when you're going to need it, and it would be behind the bed's headboard or up underneath the bed and easily accessible and not locked. Again, for some people with children, this may seem like a really bad idea, and it might be. Um, that said, I grew up in a household where you walked in the front door, you made a right turn through the kitchen, and you went into kind of a sitting room den. In that den was a large gun cabinet. In that gun cabinet was a large assortment of guns. That cabinet was never locked. That cabinet was accessible to anybody in the house, myself, other children were in the house all the time. We all knew what we were supposed to do and not supposed to do. And some of my best memories as a kid were having one of my uncles or my grandfather or somebody come home before I was old enough to go out and shoot. They'd unload their gun and make sure it was safe and hand it to me in an oil rag and say, wipe down my gun for me. Uh, and I got to hold that gun. I got to check it out. I got to look how it worked. And as I got older and was trusted with it, you know, I could go into the gun cabinet and take a gun gun out, clean it, take it apart. Please clean the guns anytime you want to. Um, it, it, in this day and age, that sounds reckless. That sounds reckless. But what has really changed since 1985 when I was that kid? when I was 14 years old or 13 years old or whatever I was. What's really changed? Has the mental capacity of a 14-year-old child changed? Or has society's bias changed? And has the, the failure of, of, of men to lead their households and teach their children responsibility changed? So if you teach your children responsibility and you run your household properly, and you believe that your children have enough brains to listen, I don't see a problem with guns not necessarily always being locked up. Again, this is highly personal, but you know, my son, when he was younger, had access to firearms, and I never once caught him breaking my trust. Because from the time he picked up the first BB gun, I was teaching him responsibility, what to do and what not to do, how to cross a fence, how not to muzzle somebody, etc. And because of that, I knew that he was trustworthy. Because not only did I teach him right, I observed his responses. And I think that's the, the most critical part 
of having guns in your home and educating your children is not just teaching them properly, but observing their progress. And giving responsibility only commensurate with progress as it's attained. And staying on that. And that's actually a great way to take your responsibility as a leader of your children properly. So I know that's not really the question that you asked. But I don't think you can answer your original question without going there. Because the only two reasons that I would want a gun locked up are so that it can't be stolen or so that someone doesn't handle it unsafely. And since it sounds to me like you're not really about locking the gun up but making the gun inoperable, you're more worried about the safety issue than a theft issue. And this is why I think it makes sense to have multiple guns and have multiple of your guns, yes, under lock and key in a safe or in a, you know, a, a hidden closet or whatever it is that you do to protect those weapons as far as their investment, but have some guns available. And I'll, I'll tell you what, the safest place for a gun in a house where children are, especially young children that haven't progressed far enough yet for that level of trust that we were talking about, is on your person. If it's, I don't care if it's immediately accessible under your bed. Somebody comes to the door, you go to the door because you don't think anything's wrong, they end up trying to break in the house, your gun is in your bedroom, good luck. But if it's on your hip, three steps back and bang. And I know some people think that's a little bit of a violent response, but then don't break into my house. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. This is Matt from Missouri. Two things. First is a question. My question is, um, what do you think about the way Texas has been advertising? The reason I ask that is all these, uh, lots of states advertise, come to Michigan for beach lines, uh, you, you know, come to Montana for the Wild West. I see ads for Texas, and they say, come to Texas. We have jobs. I want to know what you thought about that. Second thing, um, my wife has historically given me a lot of shit for prepping. Uh, until this weekend when we went on a camping trip, and in ten minutes I had six days' worth of stuff in the car and ready to go. Uh, we were only gone three days, but uh, she really gave me a, a props on, on, you know, Damn. I didn't realize you could put all this stuff in a car that quickly and be ready to go. And as far and also and like we didn't have to stop for a single thing. You had everything that we needed for this whole trip. It's a little comment I thought I would share. Thank you. Well, let's start with the Texas thing. I like what Texas is doing. I like that Texas is trying to attract people that want more economic freedom. And they are talking a little bit about the jobs that are here, but they're really the PR campaign being done to attract residents of, to Texas from other states is centered not on job takers, but job makers. Texas is going out of their way to try to bring businesses in. They don't just want you to come here and get a job. They're fine with that because we do have jobs. They want more jobs. They want companies that are sitting in New York paying ridiculous taxes, paying ridiculous insurance, subject to massive liability, dealing with all kinds of union labor crap, to say, you know what, why the hell are we here? And pick up and move. And I think it's very smart, and I'd rather advertise for entrepreneurs to come to my state than tourists to come to my state. The one is more lasting than the other. So I'm very, I'm very proud of my state for that. Uh, Governor Rick Perry uh, has not made me a fan. There's a lot not to like about Rick Perry. 
Um, but I, you cannot like a lot of things about someone and like other things that they're doing. And it's one of the things that he's doing that I am very much uh, a fan of. And it's actually being quite effective. It has brought billions of dollars in new revenue to this state at the expense of states like California and New York. We have more people coming here from those two states than probably anywhere else. My only concern is that some of those people that, that get tired of that place bring their liberal crap to, to Texas with them. Um, and then, you know, that could be a problem down the road. That's why I'm doing Walking to Freedom. I want to encourage more of this and more of it for the right reasons. And if somebody chooses Texas, I'm hoping they choose Texas because it's already close to what they're looking for. And that if they don't really think Texas is right for them, maybe they think North Carolina is, or maybe they think Virginia is, or maybe they, I don't know, you know, or maybe they think Georgia is, or maybe they think, you know, Oregon is, I don't know, whatever. But I do want people, especially in the states that have been the most oppressive and most fiscally irresponsible, like Illinois, California, New Jersey, and New York, to leave. I really do. Because I think it's, it, it's the only way to truly send a message that these policies don't work. And it doesn't mean that the other states, including Texas, are doing it all right. It means they're doing it less wrong. That, that's what it really means. And uh, federalism works only if the citizens of the federal republic put it to use. And this is certainly one way to put federalism to use, walking and voting with your feet. If you want to get more involved with that, walkingtofreedom.com would be the forum to get involved with. Uh, next up on the wife thing, that's awesome. And I think it's important that you look for little opportunities like that. If you're the one half of a, of a spousal relationship that does the prepping and the other one doesn't, try to find things that got nothing to do with emergencies that pay off. Because when people see like, okay, this is like an insurance program policy, but it works every day anyway, well, all of a sudden it's like, well, it's not that bad an idea now, is it? So when the lights go off and the emergency you know, lights come on and the kid's not stuck in the bedroom screaming and crying scared, oh, wait a minute, that was, that was beneficial. There's no zombies. So I think that's great. And I think it's something that as you're doing your prepping, every once in a while I try to evaluate what are some things we can do to prep that really benefit us today. Being able to quickly and efficiently pack for a camping trip, that's a great example. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Chris up in North Texas. Um, I was listening to your show about Ben Falk, and I wanted to know about uh, reinforcing an attic space to put a, a cistern or some sort of water supply in the attic. It's, uh, I know water's quite heavy. I think it's about eight and a half pounds a gallon. So uh, putting a 50 or 100 gallon tank in the attic, would, I would suggest, would need some reinforcement. I was wondering uh, what you would do to, to go about reinforcing that, that space. Thanks a lot. Um, this is one of those projects that falls under the heading of if you don't know how to do it, you probably shouldn't, and you should probably get someone to do it for you. That said, depending on how much water you're putting up there for a pressure tank, it, it, you know, it may or may not really be that big of an issue. Water is 8.33 pounds a gallon. That would make a 50-gallon tank 416-ish pounds, um, and that's heavy. But for the structure of a house, it's not that heavy. It would be something that framing in a few extra supporting beams would, would handle quite well for you. If you think about 
you know, the way a house is designed and built, there's a lot of things that go into a house that will weigh that much. The thing with a, a 50-gallon tank of water, if you do that with a pressure system, is you're concentrating into a pretty small area where if you're putting in, like, let's say, a, a water bed, would weigh significantly more, and many people have put water beds on second stories without having the world fall apart. And you know, water beds seem to have gone out of vogue. But you know, it was done, and the floors didn't collapse, you know, asunder. But you were spreading that uh, weight distribution out over a much broader area than you would with a 50-gallon tank. What you want to do with your re reinforcement is basically transfer that across a broader area and give more area for support. So that's that's one way that you could handle it, and it, it, it probably wouldn't be that difficult to do with a 50-gallon tank. We move up into a 100-gallon tank. Now you put a 100-gallon tank in, you're moving up in the neighborhood of 830, 832 pounds. Um, that's a significant amount of weight. Uh, again, in a, a fairly small area, um, and, and again, this is somewhere where I'd say this is probably a good idea to bring in a contractor uh, that's familiar with structural uh, systems uh, to, uh, to to put that in. And I probably wouldn't go much larger than that. I mean, again, though, you know, you're looking at a roof generally. Uh, you know, you, you know, your, your ceiling joists and all being very similar in construction. To a floor, okay. They just don't have the, you know, unless you have a decked roof, they generally don't have a deck. But the the structural components, the framing, is not much different than the floor between the second and first floor of a house. And you, you know, we I've seen plenty of water heaters uh, on second floors. You know, somebody has the, you know, they want to have a big house with a lot of uh, bathrooms. And they want to make sure there's hot water, so they stick a 50-gallon water tank up there. So 50 gallons is not anywhere near uh, the level of, uh, of weight that you, when you double it to 100. Uh, it's done in a lot of places. It's something that if I was going to do it, um, I might do something not only to reinforce the floor, but I might also dis distribute some of the load to the overhead roof joists so that you could load share between the two. Uh, that would be another way to do it. But, again, this is one of those things, like, if you're going to do this, I'd get someone that knows what the heck they're doing to do it. And if you don't think you're qualified, you're not. Because um, the, the consequences are a big hole in the roof and 100 gallons of water throughout the house. Um, it's not like having a, you know, I don't know, a, a pool dumped into your home. But it's a pretty good amount of water. It could do a pretty good amount of damage. You also need to think if you're going to do this, though, what happens if that thing springs a leak? Have some sort of a drip pan uh, with a drainage to the outside, the way you do with like a, a, a ceiling-based um, air conditioner. Anyway, if uh, anybody has some suggestions for how to do this, please put them in today's show notes. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. I have a question for you and Darby Simpson. This is Ben in North Indiana. Uh, I have my first flock of chickens for laying eggs, and they aren't using their nesting boxes. I'm not sure what I'm doing wrong. All they seem to do is sit on top of them and defecate into them. Uh, this is, my, like I said, my first flock, and I'm waiting to see some eggs, but so far, no luck. So any advice on getting them to use their nesting boxes for anything aside from toilets? Thanks. Bye-bye. I'm going to take this one because I'm dealing with it right now. Um, 
I mean, first and foremost, it just sounds like your birds aren't old enough to lay yet. And since they're not old enough to lay yet, they're not going to do anything with a nesting box other than treat it like a roost. It's good you have them there in advance. I waited too long to put them in, and it took some time to get my birds to use them at all. What happened was the birds started to lay behind one of the doors. So the one of the doors that swings open and you you use a, a clasp to hold it so it stays open and it makes a nice little patch back there. And some of the birds started laying back there. Uh, it, before I thought they were old enough to lay. They were pretty young yet. And all of a sudden I go in there one day and there's a bunch of eggs back there. So with that, I was like, wow, that, uh, I need to get some nest boxes. Now put some nest boxes in, in the general area that, that they were laying And I put them, you know, kind of low down because they were laying on the floor, and I figured they would, you know, they would make it easy for them to get in, and it would make it easy for me to get the eggs. Um, then, as more birds started to lay, they started to lay them in the eaves of the chicken house, which really isn't that big a deal. They can get up there pretty easy and pull them down. Um, but if you don't know they're doing it, you end up with a whole bunch of eggs stored in the eaves of your chicken house, which eventually can become a kind of a problem. So once we figured that out, we, we raised up the nest boxes, not all the way as high as the eaves, but pretty close, up about six foot six off the ground. And they now lay in the boxes. So one thing, if, if when, they, when they start laying, if they still don't use the boxes, you might try to put them higher in their coop. Um, and I, I wish I could tell you that that solved the entire problem. There's two boxes. Uh, they're right next to each other. Uh, they're both easily accessible, and they only lay on one of them. I, I don't know. I, I mean, maybe I need to move the other one completely to the other side of the coop so uh, there, there's more choice between the two of them. Occasionally, a bird will still lay an egg up in the eave. It's mostly those two little Egyptian families I have. They're kind of a flighty wild bird. They're a little less uh, orthodox, so I think that's just why they like to do their thing. But occasionally, and we let our birds free range right now, they're about to partially free range because they're about to get their wings clipped because they're becoming a problem. But we find eggs on the table on our porch. We have found a pile of eggs one time in the front yard. Um, ben has a deal with his dogs that if eggs are laid out in the yard, if the dogs find them, they can eat them. Our dogs don't seem to understand what to do with an egg unless you break it open for them. So um, we have actually found eggs that were soft to hard-boiled, from being laid somewhere where they probably sat in the sun and laid it, and then it, the sun came on it. But I'd say, by and large, the majority of the, the laying is taking place in the nest boxes or in the eaves, which, again, is not that big a deal because now that we know to look for them. This will have a lot to do, too, with how your birds are handled and when your birds lay. I have never seen birds that lay almost 100% in the middle of the day. I, I don't know what the heck's going on. When I was a kid, we had chickens, and I would go out every morning, and there'd be eggs there. Occasionally, they might lay one in the middle of the day, but most of the birds seem to lay in the morning or overnight. My birds lay their eggs between about noon and 2 o'clock. And I don't know if that has something to do with the fact that they're free-ranging more, but when they lay will be partially how this will be affected because certain areas may be more comfortable at different times of the day. So if it's really hot where you have their nest boxes in the middle of the day and they start laying in the middle of the day, then you know the solution might be to move it to a cooler, you know, the cooler side of the coop or something like that. If your birds are in a coop-and-run scenario um, – where they can only go certain areas and you know they don't have free range and things like that, this problem will largely f solve itself. If they start laying in an area, give them a nesting box in that area. If they like to lay high, put it high. If they like to lay low, and just play with it, and you'll sort it out. If, uh, 
If they're free-ranging, they start laying all over the place. When you find the answer to that one, let me know, because I'm working on it myself. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and take another call. Jack, John, West Virginia once again. Uh, I had been paying into a retirement plan for eight years with the company I worked for. My company was bought out, and the new company does not offer a pension plan. So they uh, said that my pension, which is well over $100,000, is tied up, and I'm not allowed to touch it until retirement age, which I do not trust people with my money. I'd like to know your thoughts on how I could get my money so I can get completely out of debt. All right, appreciate it, man. Well, John, I love you, man, and I want to answer your question, but honest to God, the way phone calls come in sometimes is mind-boggling. I mean mind-boggling. Uh, as I was screening calls today, I screened this call. I'm like, John, I'm going to put it, I try to put you on. If you have a call that's still sitting by, I look back through my things for your calls because you're like a TSP icon, man. Uh, so I found John and I, I put this up. And then I went to the next call in order. And, uh, before I, I, I answer John and the, and, and talk about the next caller statement, I just want to play the next caller's call. And you guys tell me how synchro synchronicity, uh, oriented this is. Hi, Jack. This is Michael from Southern Illinois. Love your show. Just wanted to call in with a positive uh, testimony for why it is so important to at least be going towards the goal of being financially independent and debt-free. Um, in 2012, I lost my job of 21 years with a large telecommunication company. Our part of the business was in decline, and uh, they sold us off to a hedge fund and to restructure it. And that meant basically getting rid of the union. But more importantly, it was to uh, also they transfer our pensions of all the union employees to the uh, new hedge fund, which I really just would, I thought was a very bad idea and not in my best interest. I was really scared about it. So the only way to keep my pension with, with a large company was to basically walk away before the sale of the company to the hedge fund. And um, so I did. I, one week before the company sold, I walked away. I didn't get a severance. I didn't get anything. And the reason I was able to do that, it's been tough, but was because we had been preparing. And I'm far from debt, being out of debt, but at least we were going towards that goal, and we lived pretty frugal. And uh, many years ago, I helped my wife start a small business. And over the years, it's grown a little bit, so now... Um, I'm doing that full-time. Not exactly sure what the future holds for me and for a new career, but at least I'm paying my bills and we're getting by and we're surviving, and that's the important thing. So just uh, just a good testimony there for everybody. To uh, It's really important. And um, to have the ability to have options, not just be put in a situation where you have to take what is the worst choice because of your current situation, or if you're in too far in debt or whatever, you get more options. You have more options when you're in a better financial situation. Thanks a lot, Jack. Love the show. Bye. See, it sounds to me like John's pension and the pension this guy had were more conventional 
uh, kind of old school style pension funds where the, you don't invest money. The company puts money aside for you and manages the money for you. And you don't pick, it's not a 401k in other words. You don't say, I'm going to put my money in stocks and bonds and this stock cap fund and mid cap and growth and income and, you know, amateurize it out this way. You, you don't get to do any of that. The company just says, we're putting this aside for you. So you end up coming to the conclusion that it's your money. And it's not your money. It's the company's money that they're holding for you in the future. In fact, it's the company's money that they're using to pay pensions on for people that stopped working yesterday, and they're using the money they're putting aside for you today to do it. Hopefully, the company will be such that, and the employment will be such that in the future that will continue. It's it's a asset of the corporation with a, uh, a corresponding liability. In other words, they own and hold and manage and control, usually with a third party, the fund within the company, and then the fund has a corresponding liability to pay out in the future. All right. Um, so when one company buys another company, they get all the assets, unless otherwise stipulated by the sale. So in John's instance, that's what happened. A new company just acquired the pension and then said, well, we don't do that, so we'll just let it sit there and we'll pay it out when you're old enough to get it. Um, and, and then there's always different there's different periods of vesting. I worked for one company that they had a pension fund, and if you were there three years or more, you were 100% vested in that fund. But if you left the company at that point, it stayed there. You couldn't take anything with you. And I've seen other companies that have more liberal-oriented funds where if you are vested when you leave, you can take it out early, so to speak, usually with some sort of something you give up. Uh, it sounds like the, the the second caller had a situation similar to that. You once you were vested, you could you could get it out, but the only way you could get it out was to leave the company and then take it in some way with you and, and take control of it. Where in John's situation, the deal's done. So I don't really have a solution to either one of these problems, but it is something that we need to consider when we're planning for our financial future and we're betting on something like a pension. If you don't control it, you don't own it. Okay, and that's why when I look at investments, I have differing levels of, of you know like or dislike for them based on how much control I have. I don't like 401k because there's a lot of things I don't control, but I at least can control where the money's allocated to. I can move it to bonds if nothing else to try to be somewhat safe if I know a bloodbath is coming. Uh, if it still has the option, I can put it into a short-term money market or cash equivalent fund or something like that inside of 401k. Um, if I leave my job, I can take it with me. I can roll it into an IRA. Uh, I always have the option to leave. So I don't love a 401k, but I like it. A pension, what I like about a pension is generally it doesn't require any contribution by the employee. What I don't like about it is you generally have almost no control whatsoever over your pension fund. And there, it's basically a contract with you to pay you a certain amount of money and allocate a certain amount of money for you that makes that determination in the and then pay but pay it to you in the future. So they're promising to pay you tomorrow, but today it's really money that they control. Now there's rules, you know, they, 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 there's rules to how they can use that money. But there's no rule that prevents them from losing it because the pension fund makes investments. And as an asset in the company, the pension represents part of the company's value. 
So they might leverage the company based on it. So, John, I don't have a good answer for you. I don't think that there is a good answer other than they've got your money and they've promised to pay you, and hopefully they will when you're old enough to get it. You can talk to your HR department and say something like this. I am not thinking about leaving the company. That would be the first words I would put out of my mouth so you don't get an X on your head or something like that. I'm just concerned because I don't understand how this thing went down with the pension. I've been here over eight years. I think I'm vested in the pension. What would happen to that pension and the obligations under it if I were to leave my job or lose my job for some reason? What would my options be at that time? They may say, well, in that case, since you are vested, you would be able to take this with you, or we would simply remain obligated to manage your money and pay you at retirement. I don't know what the answer is going to be. The only way you're going to find out is to ask the question. Uh, and I, you know, anytime I would ever advise someone to deal with HR, I'd do so gingerly um, and a little, with a little bit of tact. Uh, so that's that's all I've got for you. Um, but it does it does raise the question for those of you with pensions as to how much control over that pension you really have. Um, and most of the time when you're like, I just want to cut my losses and go away, uh, you can find a way to do that with an IRA. is easy, actually. A 401k, usually it involves having to leave the job, but you can make that choice. With a pension fund, it's generally not, not easy, and many times it's not possible. Let's take another call. And, John, I wish I had a better answer for you. Hey, Doc, Melissa from Illinois. This time I have a question on GMOs. I recently read an article about golden rice. Um, there, it was a link on Facebook. And it was probably, it's in the Philippines right now, I guess. And it was talking about how it's been genetically modified to have vitamin B or vitamin A, I can't remember which, and also to resist uh, common rice pests or something like that. And I wondered if you'd heard anything about this, uh, a comment uh that was after it said this is just another example of fear-mongering anti-science people, and I thought that was kind of a weird thing to say because uh, I don't think it's about being anti-science. I think it's about bad farming practices that need to be, you know, that we need to take a look at and try to fix. So if you know anything about that and could expand on it, that would be great. Thank you. Bye. I'm going to start out with something that's going to sound like it has nothing to do with this question, but for those that have seen the movie, you'll know what I'm talking about. There's a stupid movie that's actually hysterical called Malibu's Most Wanted. Uh, Jamie Kennedy plays a wannabe rich white rapper kid uh, who gets carjacked by a couple black guys who are hired to scare him so that he'll stop acting like a wannabe white rapper kid and uh, stop trying to pretend he's a gangster and things like that by, by giving him the illusion that he's actually in the hood and he's with gangsters and they're all dangerous and everything. And, and they get him really scared at some point and take him to see a movie. And, or they, no, he, 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 no, they don't take him to see the movie first. They, they're, they're, he, he ends up, I apologize, I'm sorry, and he talks all normal. And, and the two of them look at him and they look at each other and, they go, and the one guy goes, what do you think? He goes, I'm not sure. Uh, and let's give them the test. They take them to a horror movie, and the whole stereotypical thing happens there. Um, but that's kind of how I feel about Golden Rice when I look at it. Um, I, it's it's that that moment where you, nah, something doesn't something doesn't seem right, but it does look okay at the same time. 
So let's talk about what golden rice is. Golden rice is really unique in the world of genetic modification. There's a couple things about golden rice that are different than any other GM product I've ever seen. Number one, GM rice is, or GM uh, golden rice is not designed to be pest resistant. If it, if it has any pest resistance, it's a, it's a byproduct. It's not like there, there's no toxin. Uh, you know, it's not like where you take and you make BT corn and the corn grows its own insecticide that kills the corn borer. It doesn't do that. So it doesn't have any type of a toxin, uh, component other than does the genetic modification itself create a problem? And the answer is we don't really know. The next thing is it's not designed so you can spray it with a chemical. So most genetic modification stacking that's done in, in, in America today is so we take the corn and we modify it so that we can we can uh, have it kill its own corn borer, but we also modify it so it'll handle an herbicide, and you can spray an herbicide on it and it won't die. So now you don't just have a genetic modification for a toxin. You have a genetic modification that even if the modification itself doesn't harm you, it's certainly not good to be eating things that are sprayed with atrazine or, or glyphosate, and you'd have to be a moron to think that it's okay. So with GMO soybean, for instance, they have this uh, Roundup Ready soy, and they spray it twice during its growth phase with Roundup. So even if the, the GM process were as safe as they tell us it is, and I don't think so, um, you're eating Roundup-laced food and toxin-laced food. Golden rice is not genetically modified to do either one of those things. The next thing is the reason that people like Monsanto make genetically modified seeds is so they can patent them, patent the chemicals, and sell more of both. And they have the seed police to go around and say, you grew our seed without patent licensing. And then they, they come after farmers and, you know, and sometimes the farmer didn't even plant it on purpose, but they find them anyway. They violate the Constitution in innumerable ways by entering the property of a, of a, of an property owner without warrant or even having a legal authority to do so and they get away with it. And it, it makes them one of the most evil companies and others like them, like ConAgra and Bear are just as bad. Evil, you know, corporations on the planet. Golden rice doesn't have a patent. It's designed to be used in the. Th I mean, it's like one of those things where you want to hate it and you go, but patent it. No, we don't do that. You can, farmers are free to save the seed and use it. So, what is its magic sauce? It has a genetic modification. The reason it's golden, or the color of a carrot, is it's high in beta carotene or vitamin A. And the belief is that it will improve the nutrition of people without increasing the cost of production. Because farmers can save their seed, the seed doesn't cost anymore. Um, so if you're growing rice in the Philippines, for instance, you could grow this golden rice, or you grow regular rice, it's going to be the same difference to the farmer. Except that the rice is going to have this beta carotene in it. And because of that, it will help with, you know, things that cause blindness and stuff like that and bring this extra nutrition to a part of the world with no additional cost and inputs. And you have to start asking yourself, is there any way, any conceivable world in which modifying genetically a plant could be done for good and without harm? And the answer is, if, is, if you're asking me in any conceivable way could that be done, my answer is yes. There, there probably is a way that it can be done safety. We don't know what we're doing yet. Um, we have to be very, very careful, but you could probably sell me, on me, uh, sell me on the concept that it's at least possible. Okay? I'd tell you it's probably better done with breeding than, uh, you know, a, a transmugenic virus, but 
you know, it could be done. I could accept that it could be done. And if you're not patenting life forms, you're violating constitutional rights of farmers and putting chemicals in my food, I'm a little bit more comfortable with it. But then there's also another thing we learn from the movies. Remember another movie with Chris Rock and Jackie Chan? Follow the rich white guy? Remember that? He's like, wherever, because like, you know, they're trying to figure this thing out on this, who has this boat and this criminal in Hong Kong and all. And he's like, you gotta find the rich white guy. <laughs> who's the rich white guy or guys in this case that are funding this? Who's, who's, who's paying the bills for this wonderful thing that'll turn rice gold in and put vitamin A in it? The Rockefeller Foundation and the European Union. While the European Union's going broke, Euro, Euro's in crisis. We're having to bail out countries that are funding millions of dollars into this project to make golden rice with genetic engineering, which is a concern. These are not exactly the rich white guys I want to pal around with, but on the other side of it, European Union, genetically modified food is not legal in a lot of European Union nations. A lot of it's been banned. Uh, where it is okay, it, uh, labeling is required. Not exactly, so it's one of those things that just gets weirder as you go. Uh, but I'm not a fan of the Rockefeller Foundation at all, guys. Um, so then we have to say to ourselves, why would we do this? What's the what's the real advantage? Because you know you can do in bulk. I'm sure we could get the the, the cost of a of a of a dose of vitamin A that would be like a thousand times more than you get a bowl out of one of these bowls of genetically modified rice down to about a penny a dose. Because uh, you could buy it on Amazon right now in a bottle of 250 pills, and I did the math, it would cost four cents a dose. So, how much rice can we buy for a penny? So, if it's really about beta carotene, there'd be better ways to deal with that. And then we also have to ask ourselves why? Why is the diet of these people in these societies deficient in beta carotene? Is it because that beta-carotene fell out of rice or that rice isn't really a great source of beta-carotene to begin with and they have diets that are primarily, primarily based on rice. And are there ways to improve the overall farming practices and livestock management practices? And in a climate like the Philippines and tropics, we could do an awful lot uh, with very little uh, to improve diets and, and food stability. Might there not be a better way? And then you go back to, well, why would the rich white guys that are behind the money, why would they want to do this? Let's say it's as benevolent as it sounds as far as it's being produced. And Would it make then, and this is where the people that are really opposed to it think it is, it's going from the research I did, see, look what genetic engineering did in the Philippines. Now none of these children will be blind. It's not evil. It's not patented. And that becomes like a way to gain acceptance for the practice as a whole And then right back here in America, we're lacing our food with toxins under the banner of genetic modification. My overall answer is I don't know, but I still feel like, what was the guy's names? I don't remember the, the, the two dudes that, that were the actors, uh, Sean James and uh, the other guys, I don't remember his name, but uh, uh, Bloodbath and... Uh, Bloodbath and Tree or something like that. I know at one point when the other gangsters abduct him, they call him, one guy calls the guy Fatback and Milk Dud. Anyway, um, it was, uh, it was a, a funny, stupid movie, if you like funny, stupid kind of movies. Um, one my son had to convince me to watch because I just thought it was going to be ridiculous. But there is that one scene where they just kind of have that look like something's not 
something's not kosher here. And, and that's how I feel about this. And it, it's sad because otherwise it sort of checks out. And you have to ask yourself if it was being done responsibly without the motivation to completely control the world's food, could there be any good from genetic engineering? And I want to say yes, but the track record thus far is abysmal. So I have that feeling like Trey and Bloodbath had, something ain't right. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. Steve in southern New Hampshire. In the next 30 days, I'm going to have a almost unlimited supply of junk apples. Um, probably a bunch of worms, a bunch of drops, a bunch of good ones. Um, and I want to know, what would you do with them? I have made dandelion wine and dandelion mead, and that turned out okay, so I'm thinking of something like that. So what would you do if you had a unlimited supply of junk apples? Thank you. Yeah, I remember those days. Unlimited windfall apples, right? Um, my grandmother used to, uh, she have to go through a bunch of them to find ones without worms or cut bad spots off of them, and she'd make a bunch of apple pies uh, that time of year. Um, you know, the two things that come up to me are kind of what you said, cider and sizer. What's cider? I think most people know what cider, cider is if you, uh, you get a hold of a press or something like that and making uh, apple cider would be awesome. You can also do apple beers, and you don't really need to, uh, to, to, uh, to, to press the apples. If you just cut up all the, the apple parts you want to use and steep them in the wort, you don't want to put them in the wort when it's boiling. You want to bring the temperature down some and steep them with the water temperature is about 160 degrees is when you want to steep them uh, and then put them into the fermenter. And you can just put them into the fermenter uh, and, and not steep them, but you won't extract as much apple goodness if you do that. And the other thing is you're, you're doing a little bit more risk of bringing some of the wild yeasts into the beer, which you may not want to do. So uh, steeping your fruit is one way you can do it. And you can do it either in the wort uh, after the boil, during the cool-down phase, before you put it into your fermenter, and it's still hot enough to pasteurize the apples. The reason you don't want to put them in when it's boiling or bring them to a boil is it'll set pectin and put a lot of haze in your beer. Uh, it, it don't really make it taste bad, but it, it, it just doesn't look right. Uh, and it can create some other issues as well. Or, you can, again, you can go just into the straight fermenter uh, with your apples. You can do apple cider. You really need to press your apples for that. If you make apple cider, you can make something called apple jack that I think is technically illegal, but I don't know that you'd have anybody sniffing around to do anything about it. Apple jack would be you'd make this big old thing of cider, and then you'd put it like in a barrel, like out in a barn somewhere up there in your cold climate, and all winter long you'd go off and skim ice out of it. And... Uh, you'd have pretty much apple whiskey of about 70 proof on average by the time you got to spring. That was something very commonly done in, in England uh, with uh, surplus cider. So cider was for drinking, and uh, Applejack was for sipping. It's not the greatest way in the world to do this, and it has some harsher flavors, but I've often wondered what would happen if you took some Applejack and put it in an oak cask and aged it for about five years. It might really change its character quite a bit. Um, now, what is sizer? Not cider, but sizer. Sizer is where we make mead, and we include apple juice. 
Sizer is a wonderful thing, especially a spiced sizer. The world of mead is fascinating. Mead, for those that don't know, is honey wine. And a plain Jane mead is mead uh, or honey, water, and yeast. And a lot of times people in the past would make uh, meads just by diluting honey with water and letting nature do its thing. And you can get really amazing meads and really disgusting meads that way. And you don't really know what you're going to get. It generally stays pretty sweet because uh, you don't get the yeast strains that have the ability to ferment it out to a more dry mead, which I like a lot better than sweet mead. So it's best to make your meads with a good quality yeast. And one of the things you can really do to finish out a mead well is even if you want to ferment it with certain yeast that you have a certain desire to use, finish it with a champagne yeast with a higher alcohol tolerance. And then we get into the wor wor world of, of, of mead's children. So Sizer, to me, is one of mead's children because it's part uh, apple cider and part mead. So it's apple, mead, it becomes Sizer. And then there's pie mints and melomoles and all wonderful uh, things that can be done. So those are some things you could look at there. Um, you know, I mean, if I had horses or cattle, it's great feed. Um, whatever is not usable can certainly be composted. Uh, if you have an unlimited supply, I think that's usually a little bit beyond true when you say that. It means you have a lot. But if you have a really huge amount and you've got some that are just not really usable as food and you were to get something like a cheap garbage disposal and a big barrel and put them through that into uh, a barrel and create a biodigester, Your off product would be methane, which could be pressurized in one bottle and another bottle upside down in water with a weight on it. And you could produce methane gas to cook with. That would be another thing you could do with them. So those are some, some ideas that I have. But, I mean, the, the things that I would most look to do would be beer, cider, and sizer. Uh, and, again, you know... I don't, I'm a pretty paleo guy, but there ain't nothing wrong with an apple pie from time to time. If we, if we don't take time once in a while to enjoy things, what are we living for? Um, if you can get a couple that are good, right? I mean, they're just like the whole apple's good and you don't have to cut pieces off of them much or anything. I'll give you a really quick, easy way and then I'll tell you how to do it with a campfire, which is, it actually kind of tastes better. So what you do is you just take your apple and you cut the core out of it. You leave it whole though. It's peeling on whole apple, just cut the core out. Make a mixture of brown sugar and butter, or brown sugar, butter, and raisins if you like raisins. Stuff the core full with that. Okay? Put that in a microwave, microwave it till the apple's soft. It's pretty awesome, and it ain't paleo, but it ain't that bad either because there's only so much brown sugar is going to fit in there. And the apples, you know, a moderation thing, and, uh, you know, it's, it doesn't have a crust. And it's pretty good, and it don't take but like a minute and a half to do that. In fact, do 30 seconds at a time so you don't blow it up. Or put it in a Dutch oven like that and drizzle some butter over it and cook that in a Dutch oven, like a bunch of them for people. And Oh, my God. It's pretty amazing. Uh, it's not something you can eat every day, but again, um, I hope people understand when I say I'm paleo, I'm like 85 to 90% paleo 85 to 90% of the time. And there's times where I might just have a freaking bowl of ice cream, and I don't apologize when I do it, and I don't think you should either. So there's some ideas for your apples. Everything from making fuel to making cider or sizer or Applejack. Let's, uh, let's take another call. Hello, Jack. This is Eric from the late great state of California. And my question is about bounty hunters and what kind of concerns they might present for us now and in the future. I know it sounds like a 
rather odd question. After all, this isn't Star Wars. But I recently listened to a presentation by a bounty hunter, that he and he talked about um, his job, basically. Well, some of the things he discussed that concerned me a little bit is uh, being, of course, that not a government agent. Bounty hunters do not have jurisdiction limitations. That makes sense. No national borders. Uh, he said that. As a bounty hunter, he is concerned with reasonable suspicion rather than probable cause, like a government agent, and that he doesn't need warrants in our order to do things. Uh, that's all rather vague and rather alarming sounding, so I was hoping you could tell me how worried I ought to be. Thank you. Well, in, in the current way that bounty hunters are used and the way that they're paid, the answer to how much you should worry about them is unless you're, you've been bailed out of, of jail and have skipped out on your bail bond, you shouldn't worry about them at all because that's the only people that they're after. Bounty hunters are after a bounty, right? And a bounty means that when they bring you in, they get money. Now, the reason they get money is because what has happened is a person has been uh, arrested for criminal activity, Uh, charged with a crime, placed in jail, pending trial they have been released on bond. And generally you have to put up 10% on a bond to get out, and a bail bondsman will, will back the bond. So they're in it for 90% and you're in it for 10%. And that means if you put up 100 grand, they're into you for a million bucks. Okay? And if you don't show up, They lose. So they hire a bounty hunter, or the politically correct term, a bail enforcement agent, who goes out, finds your ass, and brings you back. He doesn't need a warrant. It doesn't matter where you've gone, because you are being brought in as a violator of the law. The very fact that you have not made good on showing up for your, for your hearings or trials, or to check in as required under your release, because you've been basically released In, in, in many ways, it's a type of parole. Uh, it's a, a self-funded parole system. You're paroled pending trial. You've not been convicted of the crime yet, but you do have obligations to show up for trial. So there would be no reason I would need a warrant for your arrest because you're already wanted. And you're already, there already is a warrant for your arrest. The day you don't show up, the warrant's been issued. Police bring you in, too. He'll just come get you and say, here he is. Now, the reasonable suspicion thing, what he means by that is if he has a reasonable suspicion that you're in a place, he can ask for entry. Now, I don't have to let him in, but he might force his way in if he has a reasonable suspicion that I'm hiding you. That's about the only way you're going to get into a situation where he's a problem for you. They want in your house and you tell them no, and they think you're hiding a fugitive. Most Most bail enforcement agents at that point will probably get some, some assistance with that because it gets into a gray area. Um, but if they see the guy in there, they'll shove you out of the way and go get him. Because, again, it's not the pursuit with the intent to convict. It's taking a wanted fugitive and bringing them back into the system. Generally what happens when a bounty hunter gets someone, a lot of times they don't even get their, their bail revoked. A lot of times what happens is somebody flakes out and, and like, you know, they're arrested for dope and they're using dope, so gee, they didn't show up. And a lot of times bounty hunters have a pretty peaceful confrontation. A lot of times like, dude, just come in and we'll take care of this. 
And then, of course, they're compensated in some way. Uh, a lot of times, uh, the person forfeits their 10%, and the bondsman uses that to pay you. Because uh, you've paid the bondsman, and the bondsman has put up the bond. Right, so so the the whole concept that well these guys can do this and these guys can do that and these guys can do this doesn't really matter because their their only target is someone who's already in the system, pending trial of some sort and out on bond who's then skipped out on bond, and it, so it doesn't pertain to you unless that's you. Now, if you, <laughs> if they start arresting a shitload of us just to like make an example out of us and put us into some kind of perpetual court system or something like that, which I just don't see, I guess it could be an issue. Now, could there in the future be some sort of new law enforcement group that has some of these capabilities and is more on the initial apprehension side in violation of the Constitution, some of that shit's already going on. But yeah, but that doesn't have anything to do with bail enforcement agents, a.k.a. bounty hunters. I wouldn't worry. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack, this is Bob from Eastern Pennsylvania. My question today is about buying guns, and uh, here's my dilemma. My family and I live on a written budget, and we live debt-free. I don't have unlimited funds to purchase guns, and I will not use credit to buy them, but I do have a pretty big wish list. I'm considering two purchasing options right now, and I'd like to hear your thoughts on them. These questions are not about specific brands or models. First, it seems like there are many rifles and shotguns where the price of a new gun is much cheaper if you go with synthetic instead of wood. And I'm wondering what you think of synthetic. My biggest problem is in my head, and I think it's tradition. Um, the guns my dad had and his dad had were wood. Synthetic feels wrong, but wood versus synthetic could be the difference between being able to get another gun or not. Secondly, and related, I see a lot of used guns for sale at gun shows and on the web at sites like Gunbroker. Can you give any guidance on how to evaluate a used gun at a place like a gun show where you can hold it in your hands, or how to evaluate a gun advertised online? Is buying a gun, a used gun online even a good idea? Anyway, thanks, Jack, for your guidance. I appreciate it. TSP changed the way my family and I choose to live, and I'm grateful that I found it. Have a good day. Well, let's start out with synthetic versus wood and why there's such a big price discrepancy. Let's say I want to make a wood stock. Well, there's only so many pieces of wood that will work as a gun stock. Uh, the tree has to have a certain dimension to it. The grain has to go a certain way for it to handle recoil and the, the, the shape that it's going to be put into. And then it has to be, you know, cut, shaped, formed. Each piece of wood in some ways is a little bit unique. Um, this is why you see a lot less walnut anymore and more things like maple with, that are almost more uniformly grayed, uh, grained and they're easier to just kind of, as long as the piece of wood is this dimension, you can make it the same stock every time. Um, and, uh, so that's, you know, that's why you see that. But, um, even with the finer grain woods like rock maple, you still have some of the, the things that, uh, make making a stock out of wood a little bit more complicated. It then has to be finished, and if it's going to be a good-looking finish, generally there's a certain amount of handwork in that finish. In fact, always a really good-looking walnut stock or something is going to be hand-finished. That adds labor and cost. Now, what do we get for it? We get a good-looking gun, and we get tradition. Do we actually get a better-performing gun? Maybe. Maybe. Depends. Um, the nice thing about wood is you can glass bed and, and float the, the barrel, and I have a video on floating a barrel and what that does. I'll put in today's show notes. 
But uh, it, you know, it's kind of difficult to do with a, with a with a synthetic stock. And most of your lower price guns with synthetic stocks are not built so that they are free floating. This is not that critical, but it, it does have a, an effect on accuracy. But why do we float a barrel? You can watch the video for a full explanation, but basically because the stock can change with moisture and temperature. Now, temperature will affect the dimensions of a, of a synthetic stock, but not to the level generally that will a wood stock. What really affects a wood stock, though, is moisture. Wood will absorb moisture, and then temperature and, and moisture together will change how much pressure is on the barrel. And that's why you would float a barrel or remove some of the wood so the barrel is free-floating, so the barrel doesn't come in contact with the stock. It's not bad that it does. It's bad that it does it differently from one shot to the next. It, it will have an effect on the oscillation of the barrel, or when you fire a gun, the barrel contorts and it, 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 it twists as that, that you know high-pressure projectile goes through it. And again, you watch my video for a better explanation of this. Um, and if there's pressure on one part of the barrel one time and a different part of the barrel the next time, it can affect your point of impact. Again, this is when you're getting into precision shooting and things like that, and if you're going to get a synthetic stock that's designed for this, you're going to get into a cost issue as well. So it's not that critical. Where a wood stock, you can just do it yourself, and it's easy to do with a little bit of sandpaper. So that's about the only place where I would say that the wood stock has an advantage if you want to float your barrel. With a synthetic stock, though, it's less important because it's not going to absorb moisture. It's a lot more durable. If you scratch it, you're not going to feel as bad about it. It's you know a lot of the mountain rifles that are really expensive guns are built with good quality synthetic stocks. With a stock, I'm more concerned about the shape of the stock. I bought one time a Winchester uh, Model 70 Shadow, I think it was called. It was a low cost seven millimeter Remington Magnum with a black synthetic stock and a matte finish on it. I ended up trading it to somebody. Uh, for a, a 308 Savage uh, Model 10 because the gun knocked the snot out of me and I hated shooting it. Now, I can shoot a 7 mag. It's not that heavy recoiling of the magnums, but that gun beat the hell out of me. And it's because the straight stock was designed in a way that just wasn't very ergonomic. So if I'm going to make a decision about a synthetic stock gun, I'm going to be more worried about the fit and feel of the weapon than I am with the fact that it's, it's synthetic. And if I decided, well, I could buy this gun in synthetic or not buy it at all because I want wood, I'd certainly be willing to make that concession. Next up, buying used guns. The first thing to understand about buying used guns, it's not like buying used cars. Cars are designed to wear out. Guns are designed to last. And generally, if there's a reliability issue with a gun, it's not specific to the gun. It's specific to the model. Certain guns are known for having certain problems and certain things that you would want to upgrade, like a mainspring or something like that, or having firing pins that, that, that shatter or something like that. So if the gun you're buying doesn't have that reputation for a problem, 99% of the potential for anything to really go wrong is is gone. The next thing is guns are designed to be serviceable by the user. Okay, about every gun you you can buy, you can get a parts manual for. I mean, a, a, a user's manual for where you can strip it down to you know almost as small parts as you want to, and that means when something does malfunction, there's always a way to buy a part and replace it. And as a gun owner, this is something you're going to need to be prepared to do anyway, because there's no guarantee if you buy a new gun, treat it well, that one of those parts won't fail at some point. Guns don't fail that often, though. I mean, I think a lot of people are kind of lax on maintenance because of how dadgum reliable they are. Now, there's some cheap junk guns out there, but if you're buying a good quality gun used and paying less money for it, 
unless you just want the gun to be brand new and you want to, you know, be the first and only owner, it, it, there's really not a lot of incentive for me to go out and buy a brand new gun over a used gun. I like used guns. I like used guns that are a little bit beat up. Cause I can make them look like new if I want to, or I can leave them beat up and brush, brush around with them and I don't really care. Um, you know, I like to find single shot H&R NEF shotguns with some rust on them and a little bit of pitting and a busted or, you know, scratched up stock that somebody wants to sell for 40 bucks. I, I buy every one of them I can find. They're great. Um, and you can make them really cool guns. So used guns are reliable in general because guns are reliable in general. It's not like a car where, you know, when a car has 50,000 miles on it, it's a lot less reliable than when it came off the dealer's lot. Um, generally, most guns aren't shot that much. Most people that end up selling guns, the reason they sell their guns is because they have so many dadgone guns and they want something new and they sell some of their used guns. A lot of older guns were used as hunting rifles when, when you know, a man carried one rifle and had one rifle. All these older guns from the 50s and 60s and 70s, you know, that gun might have been used a couple times uh, when it was sighted in each year, taken hunting, sat on a deer stand, fired once to kill a deer, guy filled his tag, and you know, that gun might have been fired a hundred times in, a, in, in 20 years. And so what you want to look at is the bore of the rifling and make sure it looks good. Uh, and it's not pitted in any way, and does the, the weapon function well? I am very comfortable buying used guns at gun shows. Uh, it, it's the primary reason I'd want to go to a gun show is to buy a used gun, not to buy a new gun. If I want to buy a new gun, I'm not going to pay much less at a gun show. But I get a huge selection of used guns to look at, and there's a lot of good deals in used guns. Um, you got to think about the fact that military surplus arms, you know, get used in a battlefield, get beat up, get arsenal rebuilt, sit in a crate. Uh, wait 30, 40 years to be released to the public and are bought and fired and they function. Guns in general, unless poorly stored and cared for, are extremely reliable. The gun industry is one of the best industries in the world at building a reliable product because they have to be. Because guns are one of the most critically um, covered uh, commodities anybody would ever buy. Uh, people are far more critical of a minor flaw in a gun than a major flaw in a vehicle. Um, buying from like gun broker and things like that, I, I would not hesitate to do so either. Most people that sell regularly on gun broker have a reputation you can see, kind of like eBay. Um, but they they show the gun from every angle. They post lots of pictures. And what I've noticed about gun broker, unless it's like one guy selling one gun, but if a guy that sells on gun broker often, they tell you everything that's wrong with it. You know, the, if it's a military surplus weapon, let's say it looks like it had shot some corroded ammunition at one point. It's got a little bit of pinning in it. There's a minor scratch on the stock. There's a minor crack in the forearm or whatever. And they show you the flaw. Um, you know, they say functions well, you know, or, or they'll say this should be inspected by a gunsmith before firing because it's an old antique gun. So it, it, I think when you buy from gun broker, you're going to get what you, what you were promised. So you can evaluate that way. I still prefer to go to a gun show or go to a gun shop that sells a lot of used guns. I still prefer that. I'm the kind of guy I just like to put in my hands when I'm about to hand over money for, but Again, with the reliability of guns, a used, you know, Model 25 Winchester pump shotgun with a small ding in the stock and a few, you know, missing bits of blue on a little bit of surface rust is the same whether you buy it from Joe at the gun show or Joe on gun broker. Um, you're generally not going to have problems. And again, the fact that sometimes something goes wrong with a gun is just 
a fact of life. It's like trying to ask for a tire that'll never go flat uh, or never need to be replaced. It just doesn't happen, and your gun's probably a lot more reliable than your tire. Um, you know, I think that it's just not something that I would overly concern myself with buying used, and it's probably a great way to stretch your dollar. And I, I've not ever really done a show on buying used firearms. Because I don't think the problem is there that people think is there. The, the problem is we live in a society where everybody's worried that everybody else is going to rip them off. You know, and it's because there are so many people out there ripping people off. When it comes to guns, it's a very established market with known values. And any model gun you're considering buying, with one internet search, you can find out all about it. You can download a user's manual. You can go in a forum and see other people have. It's it's one place where you really don't have to worry about being ripped off if you have just a modicum of information before you make a final decision. Uh, with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Revolution is you